There we go. Well, I'm very glad to be with you all this morning. I wasn't sure. There were more than a few days this week where I wasn't sure we would make it here this morning. Um, I have no idea who's, who, who, probably me, uh, this morning is intended for, but it's certainly been opposed. Um, this week, our son, Mike, woke up one morning and uh, had pinched his sciatic nerve and has been unable to walk ever since. And uh, on Wednesday, Thursday, Tuesday, Barb went to the dentist, and she has this tooth that has a nerve in it where when they put the Novocaine in, they were going to pull the tooth. When they went to put the Novocaine in, instead of numbing the nerve, it activated the nerve. And so they had to pull the tooth without any anesthetic. And... um, and so Barb's been in a lot of pain this week as well. And uh, so I've been the healthy one at our house, and, uh, which is a change of pace. So, um, but we want to continue this morning the series that I've been working through called How to Solve a Problem. And in Psalm 119, verse 105, the psalmist writes, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So I invite you to turn with me this morning uh, in this word which gives us guidance and direction to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll begin there shortly. How to solve a problem. Well, since we've begun developing these uh, biblical principles that answer that question, how many of you have faced a problem? At least one. Welcome to the club. You see, as we're learning about solving problems, we continue to face them, don't we? I hope you're finding solutions to the problems you're facing, the solutions that God wants for you as you're applying these particular principles. Remember, there is an answer to your problems. And as we approach the conclusion that's not today, it's the next time, whenever God determines that to be. Uh, This will be the fourth of five principles today. I want to remind you of where we've been, just some basic biblical facts about problems. By problems, the Bible often uses the words testings, trials, temptations, troubles, or sufferings. All of those words could equally be translated problem, and you'd get a good rendering of the text. And we've discovered that there are two kinds of problems in the Bible that the Bible talks about that we face. First, there's the problems I bring on myself when I allow my lusts to carry me away into sin. And then there are those problems that God directs my way, the ones, the troubles that come my way that are not my fault. Um, They come my way because I'm part of God's family. You know, have you ever thought about that? There's a whole lot of teaching out there. All you have to do is turn on the TV on, on uh, Saturday night or Sunday morning. There's a whole lot of teaching out there that says the Christian life doesn't have problems. Well, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible teaches that we do face problems. In fact, it goes on to teach that problems are God's, often God's way of causing us to grow up into maturity or adulthood in the Christian faith. And God uses these cotton-picking things called problems to accomplish that. 
So there are problems we face that we bring on ourselves, and there are problems that come our way because we're simply in the family and because we bear the family name and because God is using problems to squeeze us like oatmeal cookies into something good, the image of his son. And we've said it isn't a sin to have a problem, but that it's a sin to keep it. And by keeping it, we mean to refuse to do about your problem what God tells you to do about it. That's what keeping it means. It doesn't mean that you're not facing temptation. It just means that you have a problem that you're not doing what God says to do about it. And in that sense, you're keeping it. And uh, we talked about problems um, as a way that God's, God's way of helping us to grow up. Um, they, God uses problems in our lives to help us grow up. Perhaps you've heard of the little old lady who went to her pastor and asked him to pray with her. And she said, Pastor, pray with me that I might, have more, that I might be more patient. He said, okay. They bowed, and the pastor prayed, Dear Lord, I pray that you would send this woman great tribulation. She looked over at him, and she tapped him on the knee, and she says, "Uh, uh, no, 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 no. No, pastor. You didn't get that right. I wanted you to pray for, for patience. I didn't want you to pray for tribulation and problems. I wanted you to pray for patience. And he said, my dear sister, if you want patience you will have to face problems and difficulties because Romans 5.3 still says tribulation brings forth perseverance. You see, without problems, we don't grow. Problems are God's way of helping us grow up. And so thus far, we've developed three basic biblical principles that will help any believer at any time in any culture to approach and solve their problems in a manner that's pleasing to God. Do you remember them? Principle number one, decide to be honest. Honest with God, honest with yourself, and honest with others around you. God cannot help a dishonest believer the way he wants to. Second, evaluate your situation in light of what? The word of God. God, That's right. This means that I'm not an opinion-oriented. Well, you want to know what I would do? Not really. God doesn't really care. It's all about what he would do. I'm not an opinion-oriented person. I'm a Bible-oriented person. I'm thinking, evaluating, and acting biblically. And you want to remember, if you want to evaluate your problems biblically, there are four basic steps which help you approach your problems biblically. One, you rejoice over them and give thanks. You throw a party. Two, you keep what? For a while. You keep quiet for a while. Step three, you learn from them. Learn what the Lord is trying to teach you through the problem. And fourth, you realize that your problems are not your enemies. They are your friends in disguise, sent your way by a loving Heavenly Father who is seeking to produce in you the very life of Jesus Christ. The third biblical principle, the one we developed a few weeks ago, was to consider Jesus in the midst of your problem. Look at the life of Christ. 
Scripture says that in principle, he faced every problem. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says he faced every problem that you and I will face in principle. And so we can look at the life of Christ and see how he, when he was here, confronted that. And then we'll see often, as we look at that, we go, but I can't do that. And you'll remember some of us, some of us looked at the admonitions of how Christ loves the church and that that was how we were supposed to love our wives. And some of us found that challenging to live up to, you might recall, from the last time. You see, because when we respond to the problems that God puts in our path, we're not to respond in our own power or our own strength. But we're, we're supposed to trust that God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, will, live, will allow Christ to live out through us in the midst of that problem. So we consider Jesus, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we trust God to live out the life of Christ through us in the midst of the problem we're facing. There are days when I'm not holy, but Jesus is. There are days when I'm not faithful, but Jesus is. There are days when I'm not sinless, but Jesus is. And on and on the list can go. You see, and it's not about us. It's about letting Jesus live through us in the midst of those problems. It's about bringing Jesus into the problem and allowing him to be glorified as he confronts it through us. Which brings us to principle number four. Having done all of those things, having been honest, having evaluated the situation in the word of God, having considered the Lord Jesus and begun to trust him to live out in the midst of our problem, the next principle is this. Pray about it. Really pray. And so before we do that, let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that your word would run wild among us this morning and that you would be honored and glorified as your word goes forth. May it find a resting place and be honored in our lives this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, prayer is one of those things that always, when you talk about it from the front, um, it can be really challenging because there's nothing that makes a person immediately feel guilty other than perhaps sharing Christ, talking about witnessing and sharing Christ. The only other thing that makes people feel more guilty is when you talk about prayer. Because I know for me, when I think about prayer, my own prayer life, the great sin I see in my life is not prayerlessness. I do pray. It's not a, it's not a case of prayerlessness. The great sin in my life and that I see in others is Prayer littleness. Prayer littleness. Perhaps that's because we don't know what prayer is. Or we have a misconception about what prayer is and is meant to be scripturally. Um, You can ask the question, you often can ask the question of believers, so what is prayer? Define it for me. What is it? And everybody goes, well, you know. It's, it's, it's prayer. It's talking with God. Really. That's what it is. Hmm. Well, sometimes it's helpful to go back and get a beat on what something is by first defining what it's not. So what is prayer not? Okay. 
It's not wishful thinking. It's not just wishing something will happen. It's not merely a psychological exercise that makes me feel better about my day, kind of like getting up and doing yoga and, and uh, meditation in the morning. It's not talking with a figment of our imagination. It's not taking time to utter a few well-chosen words uh, as a token of luck and then hoping that things are going to go my way that day. It's not just talking. And more importantly, it's not a peacetime device. You see, I think that's where the most, where I struggle the most in my own prayer life. I live in America. Everything around me reeks of peacetime. We live in a, in a state of peace. And yet the scripture teaches that that isn't true for us who are part of God's kingdom. When we got brought into God's family and we became members of his kingdom, we joined a kingdom that is at war. We are in a state of battle constantly. And yet everything around me in America screams peace, peace. Sometimes I treat prayer as though it was an intercom or a, or a, a ringer bell where I ring up the butler or the valet to bring up my next meal or my, my next change of clothes. And it's not. That's not what it is. If you see prayer in the context of a peacetime mentality, you don't understand what it's for. It was never meant to be that. What prayer is like, it's, it's the radio or the walkie-talkie that, communic- that, that connects the frontline soldier to his, the rest of his troops. It's the radio walkie-talkie by which the Navy SEAL calls in air support on his mission. It's a wartime device. Prayer is meant to be a wartime device. This week, sadly, we were reminded in a sad way of uh, Lieutenant Michael Murphy, who was a Navy SEAL commanding a mission in Afghanistan in 2005. They made a movie out of this called The Lone Survivor, out of this mission. And on this mission, these four SEALs were dropped behind the enemy lines in Afghanistan, and they were trying to locate um, and capture just a horrible terrorist individual. And within minutes of being dropped off, the four of them were the advance team to locate the guy, and then they were going to radio in, and the rest of the troops and stuff were going to show up to capture this guy. And within minutes of being dropped off, the radio failed. And if you're watching the movie and you watch the radio fail, you know they are surrounded by hundreds of enemy warriors, and now they have no connection to their troops, and to their help. And actually, long story short, Michael Murphy winds up giving his life and receiving the Congressional Medal of Honor for climbing up this mountaintop under fire to try to reestablish the connection so he can call for help for his, his three brothers and teammates. 
See, that's what prayer is. Prayer is a wartime device. It's a device for calling in air support. It's a, it's a, it's a device for calling in reinforcements into the battle. Part of the reason why I don't pray is I don't see myself in the battle. You know, if I find myself without things to pray about, it, it could be because I'm not in the battle engaged. Because I tell you, if you're in the battle and you're under fire, you're going to pray. You're going to communicate. You're going to call for help. You're going to call for reinforcements. You say, okay, Jim, that's a lot of good military stuff. What about the scriptures? You want to see a battle prayer? You want to see an example? You're already there. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Now, what you have there are five wartime prayer requests. I'll break them down for you real quick. First, the first request, pray that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. Notice where a wartime prayer starts. It starts with the mission. It isn't about me. Look at what he's praying for. He's praying for the mission. He's praying, Lord, I want the gospel to spread rapidly and be honored. And I want you Thessalonians to pray with me that that will happen. He's calling for support from the Lord for the mission. Do you see that? He's calling for air support, as it were. We can pray that way too. We can say, Lord, let the gospel run wild through Malvern and Exton and Chester County. Lord, let your word spread rapidly through Great Valley High School. And let your word be honored. That is to say, let it be magnified and and rendered glorious Let your word be received with the honor that it deserves. What an incredibly great prayer. Lord, may your word spread rapidly and may it receive the honor that it deserves among the people who hear it. What a great thing to pray. But that's a wartime prayer. Look at the next thing. And we pray that we, and pray also, he says to the Thessalonians, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Have you ever noticed that when you start to do the first thing, and that is to step out and proclaim Christ to the world around you, that almost immediately you get pushback? Ever notice that? Why is that? Could it be because we're not, we're a part of a kingdom that's not at peace? But we're, at a, we're a kingdom, we're part of a kingdom that is at war. You know, and you can, the scripture is so honest. You can count on it. This is, if you step forward as we are encouraging all of us to do, and you, and you put forth Christ at the restaurant or in the high school or, or out here in the community around us, 
or down at the hospital. There's going to be pushback. And so Paul prays, Lord, deliver us. Give us speedy deliverance from those that would seek to bottle up your message. The message of your word. Third, but the Lord is faithful and will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. He prays for growing confidence. When you're in battle, you ask God for the growing confidence that he will give you everything you need when you need it. Like Wednesday at the hospital. Growing confidence that the Lord will be faithful to you, that he will show up and give you what you need when you need it. And he'll be faithful to his people just as he's been faithful to you. Fourth, may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love. He prays for an undiscouraged love. An undiscouraged love. You see, when troubles and problems come into our lives, it is so easy to become discouraged, isn't it? When your jaw just won't quit aching because the dentist pulled a tooth on a nerve that just shouldn't be acting that way, it's easy to become discouraged. Or when the cancer acts up and and it hurts like unbelievable it's easy to become discouraged and become selfish and self-centered if you're sick it's hard to think about any anything or anybody else isn't it what a blessing in those times to have undiscouraged love that reaches out to others, even when it might be easier to just crawl in a cave and have a pity party. God's love never gives up, never gives in, never loses hope, and it never stops reaching out. In times of trouble and in times of problems, when you're on mission, you ask God, And you pray that his love will fill your heart. And finally, the last thing he asks about is for perseverance. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and into Christ's perseverance. And you think, here, I'm going to come get all new tech on us here. Pretty excited about this here. Listen to this from... The message, the the version of the message of Hebrews chapter 12. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race that we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. He could put up with anything along the way, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. The cross, the shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, 
go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of the hostility he plowed through, and that will shoot adrenaline into your soul. That's a message version of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. The part I like about that is it talks about Jesus and his perseverance, and it says he never lost in the middle of the cross, in the middle of all the troubles and problems that he faced. He never lost sight of his father and of the mission the father had sent him here for. He kept his eye on the prize. He knew he would soon accomplish what God sent him to do and that he would soon be home again. Therefore, he was able to put up with anything, any hardship, any problem along the way. Praying for perseverance means praying that you will never lose sight of the big picture and that you will always remember where you're going. And if you maintain that perspective, you'll be able to endure anything. See, prayer is not a peacetime activity. That's why it doesn't make sense sometimes. If you try to use it in a peacetime context, you go, I don't understand. This doesn't seem to work real well. (laughs) It'd be like trying to use that walkie-talkie or the military radio in everyday life around here. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you're engaged in the battle, if you're engaged in the mission, it becomes incredibly important and an incredible piece of your arsenal. What is prayer? Well, we've discussed what it's not. It is a wartime weapon. It is talking, it is talking with God the Father in the name and authority of God the Son through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. That's what prayer is. Here's one other definition that I thought was pretty cool. Prayer, you got to think about this one. Prayer is not the overcoming of the reluctance of God to give. It's not the overcoming of the reluctance of God to give, but it is the bringing into adjustment my will with his will so that he might righteously do what he otherwise could not. Hear that? Hear the relationship in there? Prayer is about a relationship with God where as we converse with him, he brings our will into alignment with his will so that he can do righteously what he wants to do and bring glory to himself. That's what prayer is. And what it's not. Second question, there's only two questions this morning. What is prayer and why? Second one is why pray? And we're going to be real simple on this. Why pray? Well, turn to Luke 18. Turn over to Luke chapter 18. This is real simple. The first reason why we should pray is because God says to. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up. Now, in the context of what we just said, that makes a lot more sense. What he's saying is, we're always supposed to use the walkie-talkie, and we're supposed to stay in the fight and never give up. 
We use the weapons God gives us, and we stay in the fight because he tells us to. Secondly, it's because of the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. While we're in Luke, turn over to Luke chapter 4, or back a few chapters. This is one of the most, I think, um, or Luke chapter 5, excuse me, not 4. Luke chapter 5. This is one of the most troubling words, little words that I've ever found in the scriptures, at least for me. It's one word, it's a little word, but it causes me more trouble than very few other words in the scripture. It's found in chapter 5 of Luke, verse 16. It says this, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. You know the word in there that gives me all kinds of trouble? It's a little word. It's the word often. I have tried and tried and tried to get my life into that word. And no matter how hard I try, I just can't quite get there. You know, if Jesus, not if, Jesus is the Son of God on whom the Holy Spirit dwelt without measure. And yet, Jesus often withdrew to lonely paces to pray. That's his example. If he needed to do that, how much more do I? You know, as hard as I try to get my word into that word often, I can't do it. Oh, I can say, Jim prays. I can say, Jim goes to lonely places. I can say, when things get really hot and heated, Jim will pray. I can say, there are all kinds of things I can say about my prayer life, but I still can't say, Jim often withdraws to lonely places to pray. And I've begun to pray, Lord, I'm not there. This is one of those scriptures I look at and I go, I'm just not there. There could be all kinds of reasons why I'm not there. Perhaps I'm not as engaged in the mission as I'd like to be or should be. You know, I don't see the needs the way I should. But whatever it is, I've asked the Lord. I've begun a prayer campaign and asked the Lord, Lord, my life isn't in that neighborhood yet. But, but a year from now, I would like for myself and for my church family to be on the outskirts of the neighborhood of often that we would be moving more towards the truth of this verse. That it could be more said of me and of all of us that we would often gather to pray. And to pray not just for us, but to pray the wartime prayers for the community around us. Why pray? Because God says to. Second, when you look at the example of Christ. And third, because Prayer is the tool, the weapon, whatever, that God gives us that he uses. Put that back up. It's It's the weapon, the tool that he gives us to use to release the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Remember last, last time, the, last, the third principle was to examine or consider the life of Christ and then trust God to live the life of Christ through you, to empower you, because we don't have that power. How does that happen? You pray. You ask God to do that. You, in prayer, you demonstrate your dependence on the Lord that he's going to do that for you. And that's what prayer does. It puts us in a dependent relationship with the Father. And that's how it relates to the whole issue of problem solving. And you say, show me examples of this. Okay. Turn to John. I'll show you two examples. I'll show you an example of quantitatively how that power looks. And I'll show you an example qualitatively. In John chapter, let's see. There we go. John chapter 12. Turn over to John chapter 12. Look with me at verse 19. Or actually, let's go back and get a running start at verse 19. Let's start at verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him continued to spread the word that Jesus had called Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. Verse 19, the key verse. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. You want to talk quantity of of power? The enemies of Christ were compelled to say of Jesus, look, everybody is following him. What would it be like to look out in Chester County and say, the whole world, our whole world around us, has decided to follow Jesus? That's what happened. How did that happen? It happened because Jesus prayed. Remember when he went to the tomb, he prayed before he raised Jesus from the dead, or Lazarus from the dead, rather. He prayed all the time. Remember in, when we were studying the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1 after that big night in Capernaum with uh, Jesus or Peter's mother-in-law, and they were up till midnight healing people, and they got up the next morning, they couldn't find him. Where did they find him, finally? Out in a lonely place, praying. He prayed all the time. And it wasn't until about halfway through their ministry together that the disciples finally got the idea, you know, how come we can't do the things Jesus does? And it was probably Philip, who very rarely missed anything, who was the one that said, hey guys, have you ever noticed the way the Lord prays? Maybe there's a connection. It's not just quantitative, though. It's not just about the numbers of people. Look at the quality. Turn over to John chapter 18. You want to see the quality of of power that is released through prayer? John chapter 18, verse 1. When he had finished praying, catch the intro? When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley 
And on the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went up into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Okay? So get the picture here. Jesus is in the garden with the disciples. Judas comes with a whole bunch of folks from the, from the temple, soldiers, armed to the teeth to, catch, to take this dangerous criminal into custody. They come marching in, and in verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, there's quite a phrase, went out and asked them. So he steps forward in the dark. Now, you got to remember, we live in a society where there's light at the, in the darkness. You've got to think campground here. It's dark, and they've got torches, and you, know, you don't see well in that kind of environment. And so Jesus sees them coming, and he, he moves forward so that they can see him. And he says, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Now, you have to read into that just a little bit. What do you think that sounded like when they said it? But it's not, you know, remember, they're armed to the teeth, coming to capture this criminal. Jesus of Nazareth, we're armed. We can take him. See what it says next? I am he, Jesus said. And then in parentheses it says, And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, this is where having a good study Bible helps you. Because if you have a good study Bible and you're looking at that chapter, that verse, you'll notice that the he in the English there is italicized, which means the translators put that English word into the text in order to give it context and help you understand meaning in the English language. The fact that it's in italics tells you that the word itself is not there in the original languages. What the original languages say is that when Jesus stepped forward and he says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. What he says is, I am. I am. And what happened when he said that? All of a sudden, these armed guys who were armed to the teeth are face down in the dirt. What just happened? Imagine you're one of these guys. You know, it's just, you're just one of the soldier guards at the temple. You get a call. You're out on duty. You're going to go up and you're going to grab some criminal. You show up and you go, ah, no big deal. He looks like a shepherd. And boom, all of a sudden, you're face down in the dirt. You're going, what just happened? What happened, Ralph? I don't know. What happened, Fred? I don't know. This is where you can see Jesus has a sense of humor. Verse 7, again he says, who is it that you want? Notice what they say. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Why is it the second time they said that I think it was different than the first time? Yeah, yeah, they got dirt in their mouth for one thing, and they're dusting themselves off, and they're going, uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, tell me you're not him. <laughs> you see the power here? They were never going to take him by force. 
You know, we talk about all the angels of heaven that stood ready to protect Jesus. He didn't even need them. All he had to do was speak. And all he did there was speak his name. And his name immediately put them in the dirt. Reminds me of another passage of scripture where it says there's coming a time when at the name of Jesus, and by the way, the name of Jesus is I am, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Here you see it, you see a forecast, a foreshadowing of that right here. The power, what you see here is the power of the Holy Spirit present in the life of Christ. And that is the power that when we pray gets unleashed into our problems. Do you see that? It's the power that causes the whole world to follow Christ. And it's the power that simply has to speak its name. And everyone is compelled into obedience. Why pray? Because God tells us to. Because of the example of Jesus. And because prayer is the tool, the weapon, the radio that calls in the power of God to our problems. How do you solve a problem? Well, first you decide to be honest. Honest with yourself, honest with the Lord, honest with others around you. Second, you evaluate it not in light of what you would do about it, but you evaluate it in light of what God says to do about it. Third, you consider Jesus and what Jesus can do when he comes in and steps into that problem. And fourth, you pray about it. You really, really pray about it. You ask God to unleash the power of the Holy Spirit, the power that you don't have. You go, I can't. I can't get out of this. I can't see my way through it. I can't get out of this problem. You pray when you can't, God can. And you pray his power into that problem, that he would be glorified as you do and you work out what he showed you to do about it here. You go, I can't do that. That's like last time when I said, I can't be the husband that God wants me to be in here. That's right, I can't, but God, Jesus can. How do you activate all of that? You activate it through prayer. You pray about it. You really pray. Well, the next time we gather together, and we have this opportunity, we'll do the fifth principle, the last one. I'll keep you waiting for that one. And, uh, but let's pray now. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity this morning to talk about what prayer is and what it's not. Lord, I pray that um, we would be making prayer less and less about us and more and more about you. More about what you want and less about what we want. I pray that within the next year, both my life and the lives of my church family 
would get into the outskirts of your example of often departing to a lonely place to pray and often coming together to pray. And Lord, I pray that in our church family and in my life and in the lives of my family, brothers and sisters here, that your power would be released here in Chester County so that the world might follow you and that we would bring honor and glory to you in the process. Lord, may your word run wild and receive honor in Chester County at Great Valley High School, in the restaurants and the businesses around us, and in the hospitals downtown in Philadelphia through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.